morning. I'll be reading um, from Genesis 8, 20 through chapter 9, verse 17, if you'd like to follow along. And that's on page, see, that's on page 8 in the Pew Bibles. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed, remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I gave you the green plants, I give, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for you, your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right. Well, I hope you're still there. If not, I would ask that you uh, do turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. Uh, our passage this morning as we continue uh, our verse-by-verse study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And our passage this morning is Genesis 8 verse 20 through Genesis chapter 9 and verse 17. Uh, where we learn about the Noahic Covenant. And uh, this is an important passage. We have, throughout this study, tried to uh, notice together, to take observation of our Savior, of Jesus Himself. And notice that Jesus is 
spoken of and pointed to even here in these very first chapters of the Bible. We have seen Jesus in Genesis 1. We've seen Jesus in Genesis 2. We've seen Jesus in Genesis 3. He's been all over the pages. And uh, today I want to show you Christ again in this passage where God speaks to Noah and to his family and even to the animals of the earth. I, I want to draw your attention I want to draw your affection to Christ on you so that you will leave this place encouraged and uh, eager to continue trusting in Him and abiding in Him and living for His honor and glory. In our passage this morning, I uh, want to particularly speak of Christ in three places. First, Christ at the altar, uh, when we see Noah making his sacrifice. Uh, I want to talk about Christ and the blood. We have these verses about not eating animals with the lifeblood in them and what that means. And then I want to talk about the rainbow and how that uh, points to Christ. And so uh, let's begin this morning by thinking about Christ at the altar as we see Noah and this sacrifice. Imagine that you had been on the ark all this time. Uh, We have covered the story of Noah and the ark over a period of about three weeks. Uh, It wasn't three weeks for Noah and his family. And it wasn't three weeks for them with all those animals. Uh, As we saw last Sunday night, they were on the ark a total of a year and ten days. And so they were on the ark for quite a while, cramped in all of humanity... Eight people on this boat. And now, finally, we come to a place where they have been allowed to to, to walk outside and they leave the ark and enter into this new world. And I wonder, if that had been you, what would be the first thing that you would do stepping out of the ark? Would Would you get on your knees and kiss the ground? Would you begin skipping around and running to and fro, so glad to be out of that that cramped space? I mean, the ark was a big boat, but let's face it, over a year and ten days, it gets cramped, right? So you you maybe run to and fro and enjoy the open space. Would you perhaps immediately get to work? I mean, now you're going to need a place to live. Do you you begin taking apart the wood of the ark to to build you a, a house or a dwelling place so that you can now begin your new life? Well, the first thing that we see Noah do when he gets off the ark is worship. The first thing that we find Noah doing as he steps out is expressing his gratitude, his joy, his thankfulness to the Lord for saving his life and the life of his family. He builds an altar. And we're told that he sacrifices one of every kind of clean animal that he had. Remember, he took seven pairs of each kind of clean animal. That's to serve as food for them. And yet, they're going to need food, but he's willing to sacrifice one of every single one of those kinds of animals to express his praise to God. Mount Hermon, our first and foremost response to God for our salvation should be worship. Our lives as saved people should be lives of praise and rejoicing and gratitude. An ingrateful Christian is an oxymoron. <laughs> should never happen. It's a self-contradiction. It doesn't make sense. When we consider what we have been saved from, 
the horrors of God's just wrath against us in hell. And when we consider what we have been saved for, the eternal blow-your-mind blessings of God just poured out on you forever and ever in heaven, how can you not live in gratitude and worship and praise? Folks, our lives on this earth are very short. We're not here for long. How could we possibly not live these lives saying, I want to honor the God who has done this great thing for me. Worship ought to characterize your life as a Christian. Worship ought to characterize my life. We have been saved, redeemed, purchased, ransomed. I wonder, do you live like one who has never been saved? Do you live like once, like one who even though you've been snatched out of the fire, you live like those who are headed there. I hope you don't. I hope the fact that God has done this great thing for you, and even now, this very second of this very minute, of this very hour, of this very day, this very moment, Christ is working in you for your good and His glory. He is loving you. You are here. You are hearing His Word. He is doing something in you. Are you living like someone who is being blessed by God? hope you are. Noah's first response to his salvation was worship. I wonder if those who know you best, those who spend the most time around you, your family, your co-workers, those who have conversations with you, would they describe you as a worshiper? Would they say of you, yeah, I know that person. That person talks about Christ all the time. That person, you can tell there's something different. He lost his job and he was still rejoicing. She, she had to, to lose an arm. And yet she still continues to praise her God. What, what do you do with people like that? You think their Savior must be something. What is it about their Lord that gives them hope? Worshippers exalt the name of God in the eyes of the world around us. Would others describe you as one who loves to speak the praises of God? Well, Noah worships at an altar. He, he makes these sacrifices. and We're told that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and He promised never to flood the earth again. What are we to make of this? The Bible says that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of these sacrifices. Uh, we, we need to be clear. The, the Bible does not teach that God has a literal nose, as if it was literally the smell of these animals being sacrificed that, that brought pleasure to Him. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. It is not the literal aroma. Rather, this is biblical language to express that God was pleased with the sacrifice. And what God is pleased with is the worship in Noah's heart being expressed through the sacrifice. Folks, we just worship through song. And I believe God loves to hear His people sing to Him, but only if they're singing out of gratitude and rejoicing and hope in Him. Those songs don't mean a flip to Him if you're just singing them to sing them. And the, the aroma of these animals did not please the Lord, except that Noah was expressing His praise through it. In fact, it was God who taught His people 
We saw it with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And now with Noah, it was God who taught His people to express their worship to Him, their love for Him, through sacrifice. Now, to me, that's a weird way to say I love you. I mean, wives, can you imagine on Valentine's Day, your husband coming to you with a dead goat carcass draped across his arms, saying, honey, I just wanted you to know how much I love you, and I thought, you know, I could bring her roses, or I could buy her some jewelry, but you know what would really express my love? Killing a goat. Would you feel loved? Probably not. But God called His people in the Old Testament to express their love to Him by cutting an animal's throat and draining its blood and putting it on an altar. Why? It's all about Christ, isn't it? It's pointing to Jesus, isn't it? Thousands upon thousands of oxen and goats and lambs and doves Killed, sacrificed on an altar, all pointing to that climactic, once-for-all act of worship. There was never an act of worship like when for the sake of His Father, Jesus laid His life down at the cross. See, Jesus understood God has a plan, and He has a plan to bring a people to Himself, to save sinners, and to to have a people to bless, a people that will reflect His image, a people that will imitate Him and be characterized by holiness, a people that will bring pleasure to His heart and glory to His name. But Jesus knew that God could not just bring those people to Himself because they are sinners. And God is holy. If God were to just bring sinners right on into heaven and to treat them as if they never sinned, God would be unjust. God would be wicked not to punish the wicked. And so Jesus, in order that God can be both just and the justifier, Romans 3, right? In order that God could be both holy and the Savior of us, worshipped His Father, obeyed His Father, did His Father's will, even when it meant the cross. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for His Father. It was a supreme act of worship. And every act of worship through sacrifice for all of those years leading up to it pointed to Christ. Because of Him, we can go to Him by faith and our sins can be forgiven. Have you done so? Not just have you, have you done so, as if it's something you do in the past. Are you believing in Christ this very moment? Are you trusting in Him? Are you, are you resting and abiding in Him as the one who has brought you to God? We see Christ here at the altar. We also see Christ when we think about the blood. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, 9 verses 1 through 7, are all about blood. Uh, It begins with God coming to Noah and to his family and giving to Noah and his family pretty much the very same commission that he gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning. Uh, God tells Noah and his family, fill the earth multiply, subdue it, reign over the natural world, govern the animals and the plants, be stewards of creation. And yet, 
There are some differences this time. There are some things that are different between God's commission to Adam and Eve and and this commission to Noah and his family. And uh, one difference is this. When God spoke to Adam and Eve, multiply, fill the earth, they were sinless. They were pure, perfect. They They had not yet fallen. And if Adam and Eve had obeyed God's command and had done so without falling into sin, had they multiplied, the whole earth would have been filled with worshipers, with people reflecting the image of God, with a whole paradise stretching from the four corners of the earth of people bringing glory to God. This time, God is very well aware when He speaks to Noah about multiplying that when this family multiplies, this earth is going to be filled with a humanity that is at enmity with Him. A humanity that is hostile to Him. A humanity that is going to be fallen and sinful. Which raises the question, why would God want no one in His family to multiply? I mean, we read here in these verses, I mean, God even says still here in these verses that uh, chapter 8, verse uh, 21, in the middle of the verse, I will never again curse the ground because of men, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is very clear. Man is going to be wicked, and yet He says, I want you to multiply anyway. Why? Well, God's working towards something. (laughs) He has an end game. He has a goal in mind. His goal is for man to spread out throughout all the earth, to become different tribes, peoples, and nations, to take on new languages, different cultures, different customs. And then, through His Son Jesus, to save some from every tongue, tribe, and nation and to make them the very different one body. God is glorified by unity in diversity. Right? He is one and yet three. He's diverse. Father, the architect of it all. The Savior, the uh, one who accomplishes it all. The Spirit, the one who applies it all. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all different, and yet they're one. They are the same. So also, God loves unity and diversity. He has ordained for Himself a people, but not just any people. A people made up of all kinds of different people who are still one. Folks, we're very different from our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ. We're very different from, uh, what, the the brothers and sisters that live in Zambia or those who who live down in Argentina. And yet, though we are different from them in language and culture and custom, we worship the same Lord. We are indwelled by the same Spirit. We are headed to the same new earth. Christ has made us one to His glory. Now, another difference between this commission and the one given to Adam and Eve has to do with animals. In Genesis 1.29, there at the beginning, God comes to Adam and Eve, comes to Adam and Eve and says, I give you all the green plants for food. It appears that Adam and Eve were probably vegetarians. But now something has changed. Something has has happened in the animal kingdom because of the curse of man's sin. These animals who were probably once nobler creatures have become less noble and now they have been given over to death just like man. 
And for the first time in the Bible, we find God giving man the animals not only to rule over and care for, but even to take as food. Uh, if you want to see it, it's, it's there in verse 3. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Every living thing that moves. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the show on the Discovery Channel with Bear Grylls. I mean, he eats every living thing that moves. He eats snakes and termites and just the nastiest stuff, but he eats them as food. There are some who believe that eating meat is sinful or immoral. Um, that is out of step with the teaching of the Bible. Now, that does not mean that we have a right to, to be cruel to animals. It does not mean that we have a uh, right to be careless or ungrateful or ungrateful for, for animals. Um, we are stewards, but the Bible does say that animals have been given over to us for food. But there's one stipulation. And it's the stipulation that we find in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In the Bible, blood represents life. Both Old Testament and New Testament, blood is a symbol of the life of a person. The, the draining of the blood of an animal was a way of saying the life has left it, and therefore now we can have it for food. In the Bible, the phrase, the shedding of blood, or he shed his blood, is another way of saying you took somebody's life, that that life has been taken. Look at verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Listen to this verse. It's a poem. It's a song. It's, it's a way of teaching a truth in a memorable way. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The point is that man, though fallen and sinful, still bears the image of God, still has dignity, and his life matters and is important. Man has, in limited form, yes, limited form, but man has, in limited form, some of the attributes of our good God. Our God is wise. We have a capacity for wisdom. Our God is all-knowing. We have a capacity for knowledge. Our God is loving and merciful. We have a capacity for love and mercy. We are miniature versions of God, of at least some of His attributes. And He finds pleasure when He sees His people reflecting His attributes back to Himself. We bear the image of God. And because of this, all human life has value. Remember our baseball illustration. I've given it to you many times. Go to Walmart, buy a baseball. I don't know, $8 maybe, a few dollars. Anyway, it's, it's not that much. You take that same baseball and let Derek Jeter put his signature on it. What happens to that baseball? Skyrockets in value. Well, folks, as just flesh and blood, don't overestimate your value. You're just flesh and blood. You're just a part of the earth. You're, you're not worth much, except that God has come 
and breathed into us. And He has put His image on the human race. It is because God has stamped His image onto us that human life is noble and has dignity and has value. We show our respect and we show our reverence for God by treating those who bear His image with reverence and respect. This is why a sin against another person is always a sin against God. When a person chooses to kill another person, according to this, that person is to be killed. The death penalty is instituted here as a governing principle for humanity. And we can assume here that this is talking about an intentional, planned, um, deliberate act of murder. It is to be responded to with the taking of the murderer's life. Why? To show the dignity of human life. To show that it is no small thing to treat your fellow man with contempt. To murder another person is to commit a sin against God. Murder is not just an offense against the person murdered. It is an offense against the God whose image that person bore. And we talked a great deal about all this a few months ago when we were in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. We talked about the image of God. And so I'm I'm not going to dwell on it here. Go back, go to the website. You can hear a whole message on the implications of human beings bearing the image of God. At this point, I want to press on and show you how all of this points to Christ. If the blood of a person represents his or her life, What does it mean when we hold up our cups of juice and hear Jesus say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and then we take it and drink it? What does that mean? Why do we do that? Let me read for you one of the most disgusting things Jesus ever said. One of the most disgusting things Jesus ever said. This is John 6, 53, 56. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Boy, that would get a lot of followers, won't it? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What does that mean? Well, Jesus doesn't mean that we are obviously literally to drink his blood, but rather his blood is the symbol of his life. One of the most important pictures in the whole Bible is when the spear is plunged into Jesus' side and what happened? Blood and water flowed. The spilling of the blood of Christ, the, the draining out of His blood was a picture just like of the sacrifices of His life being taken from Him. His life leaving Him. And all of these physical pictures of Christ going from life to death are meant to remind us of what was really happening, the main thing that was happening at the cross. That He was enduring spiritual death for our sakes. 
The wages of sin is death. And death is not just physical. It's also spiritual. It is God's just condemnation being poured out on us. Our sins cut us off from God. And on the cross, our sins as Christians were taken off of us and put on Christ. So that Christ became separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus endured the spiritual death our sins deserved. Bearing it in our place that we might have the spiritual life that is rightfully His. It's the great exchange. It's the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. If we were having Lord's Supper this morning, we're not. But if we were, would you be able to take that blood, that's what it symbolizes, and say... which is a profession, I am placing my trust in the teaching of the Bible that Christ's blood, His life, was poured out and spilt for me. I am a participant in His blood. He bore the wrath my sins deserved so that I could know God. Would you be able to do that? Only those who rest in Christ can do that honestly with a good conscience. I hope you can. Let's press on. Let's talk about Christ and the rainbow. Christ and the rainbow. Our God is a covenantal God. Everybody say covenantal. It means our God is a God who makes promises. And because our God is a God who makes promises, His people are people of faith. That is... We're people who believe promises. Right? That's what makes us who we are. Christians are those people who believe the promises of God. All of humanity can be split into two groups. Those who believe God's Word and those who don't. Those who trust and rest in the promises of God and those who do not trust and rest in the promises of God. Well, some of God's promises in the Bible are called covenants. These are big promises. <laughs> These are the biggest of promises. We already read, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Our our whole salvation is a belief on a covenant. A promise that God is going to relate to us with mercy and grace through Jesus. Well, here, God establishes a covenant with Noah. A covenant is when God comes to somebody and He promises them, this is how I am going to relate to you in the future. Basically what a covenant is, a promise about how God is going to relate to someone else in the future. And he comes here to Noah, but he doesn't come just to Noah. He comes to Noah's sons, right? He says this covenant is with Noah, it is with Noah and his sons. And yet look at verses 8 through 10, because it's more than that. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your, what? Folks, it's us. This is a covenant, a promise that God has made, not just to Noah, but to all of us in this room and to all humanity, because we're all descended from Noah. Keep reading, because it's not just us. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you. 
the birds, the livestock, and every beast with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. This is the only covenant that I know of in the Bible that God makes not just with human beings, but with the earth as a whole, even the animal kingdom. And what is the promise? Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Folks, God did not have to make that promise. He could have flooded the earth as many times as He wanted. He chose to make this promise. In His wisdom, in accordance with His good and sovereign plans, He chose not to repeat this event. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, there is another judgment coming. That judgment will be the last judgment. And it will be a judgment of fire. But it will not be a judgment of water. From the time of Noah's flood to the very last judgment of all, God promised never to judge humanity. And not with the earth, not with the flood, not with a way that would wipe us from the earth. And God gives a sign to go with this covenant. He often gives signs to accompany His covenants. And these signs are, are to be a reminder of His promise. The sign that He has given to us is that of a rainbow. This is so merciful. I mean, folks, you have to understand, this very moment, all of humanity deserves to be wiped off the earth. I mean, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be wiped off this very moment. Every second we are alive is grace. And God reminds us of this by putting a bow in the sky. There's at least two reasons for this, I think. First, it is God taking His weapon of war, a bow, it's what people in those days used to kill each other. It was a weapon, so He used the symbol of His judgment and He hangs it up in the sky, as if to say, though you deserve judgment, though you deserve my wrath, I am hanging up my bow and I am going to be patient with you. And I am going to give you opportunity to turn to me and to repent and to be saved. I am, I am going to, for a time, and it's been a long time, show the human race mercy and long-suffering and patience. And though they trample my glory every single day, I am going to endure it. I am going to bear it. And I am going to put my bow up here in the sky and hang it up. But more than that, I'm not only going to hang it up, but I'm going to hang it up pointing towards me. I mean, what if the, the sign that God had given us was a bow going this way? Where it looks as if all God has to do is it's pointing down to earth and all God has to do is pull the string and the arrow of His judgment is going to fall on the earth. That's not how He did it. He hung it up this way. So that it looks as though if God pulls the string, the arrow of His judgment is going up to Him. In other words, every time we see a bow, it is a reminder to us that the only reason God can be just and not punish the sins of man today is because he was going to send that punishment on his son. That he himself, God himself, was going to bear the judgment for all who would turn and trust in him. You can be saved from the wrath, the righteous wrath of God by trusting in his son. 
God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you resting in Christ this morning? Are you abiding in him? Is he your shelter and your refuge? What's happening in your heart right now? Is your heart saying, yes, he's mine. My comfort is in him. Is your heart saying, when's lunch? It's a very bad sign. I hope you're rejoicing in the Lord this morning. I trust that you know him. I hope you do. If you don't, you need to call on the Lord. You need to say, Lord, save my soul. You are my only help. Show that you trust Him by doing what He says. You need to get baptized to show that you're a follower of Him. You need to get into a church and into His Word. Let Him make you a disciple. Call out on Him today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that you will. Let's pray.